You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from around the world. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, I'm welcoming to our studio in Dublin, Amy Chozik, a national political reporter on the New York Times. We'll be chatting about what it was like to spend the US presidential campaign tracking Hillary Clinton and how the mainstream failing media and papers like our own are adjusting to the new politics of the Trump presidency. Amy, you've taken a particular interest in the Clintons since 2007 when you were with the Wall Street Journal. And indeed, you're writing a book uh, which will be published by HarperCollins on the, on the campaign and on your life uh, next year. Perhaps you could start by explaining to Irish listeners why Hillary Clinton has become such a toxic figure of hate, with 70% at various stages saying uh, that they don't trust her. Something that really is quite bewildering to people. Here, we've very much taken to the Clintons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly she's always happy talking to an Irish crowd. Um, I think with Hillary Clinton and uh, the kind of Hillary hate that you see, it really started back as soon as she came onto the national stage. Um, I was reading through some archives of one of her best friends who she confided to, uh, Diane Blair. She passed away and her diaries went to a library in Arkansas and I was reading through them and it was 91. It said, She said, I, I don't understand the level of venom for Hillary. They're selling dis, disembodied Hillary dolls at the at Republican gatherings. Um, I think she has always represented, uh, not, been not just an affront to how Americans view professional women, but also how women view their own choices. If you remember in 1992, um, she was questions about, questioned about her career as a lawyer, and she said, I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas. You know, she was sort of ahead of her time. Now women can defend their professional career, and it's perfectly fine. But at the time, you know, that was a real lightning rod issue, and she was really the first first lady to have an office in the West Wing to be in charge of a major policy agenda in health care. And I think she just has been around so long, people have such strong feelings about her. And it wasn't, as, as you mentioned, it was not something she could shake uh, in 2016. If anything, it got worse with all of the uh, controversy around her private email server and all the rest of it. And was that the same among men and women? Well, it's interesting, yes. Um, uh, you know, I think that there was this thought among her campaign that there would be a reflective gender allegiance among women voters, particularly young women, and they really didn't find that. I mean, if you go back to the primary, a lot of young women were supporting Bernie, and I would say they weren't just supporting Bernie, they were in revolt against Hillary. Um, it's very interesting. I think young women thought, uh, you know, grew up in the era of Obama and thought, we're going to have a woman president, why does it have to be that woman? Um, people will sometimes say to me, and actually women voters said this to me a lot, that it's not because she's a woman, it's because she's that woman. And I think that 30 years of sexism have made her that woman. And so it's very hard, I think, to conflate kind of our own views about powerful women and the level of, of Hillary hatred that there there's a, is. There's a sort of um, effect to the Obama's election as president uh, yeah. showed, if you like, that the door was open on the equality issues and, and that it was possible for, for a, quote, minority uh, candidate to be elected uh, president. So, so women were saying, well, it can be done. And Obama's shown it can be done. We, we don't have to vote for, for Hillary. Right, exactly. Women thought that Obama, young women in particular, thought if we can elect an African American, um, that we can't, we will elect a woman at some point. Why does it have to be that woman? And that also part of feminism is making your own choices and not just sort of reflectively, instinctively voting for the woman because of gender. Um, so young. But meanwhile, there was a whole cadre of older women, uh, baby boomer women, who found great solidarity with Hillary Clinton and her cause and what she's done for professional women in her 
you know, long career and who, uh, you know, and whose whose own struggles they very much saw their own. At what point in, in the campaign did you suddenly, or maybe it wasn't sudden, you get the sense that this was all going wrong? Um, I would say in the last couple months. So I covered Obama in 2008 after Hillary lost the primary. I switched over to be in Obama's traveling press, traveled with him all through, and then covered his early early in the administration. I would say in 2008, you knew that was a winning campaign when you went to those Obama rallies. Um, with Hillary, I just kept telling my editors, I feel like I'm not covering a winning. I feel like this is a losing campaign. That said, I didn't think Trump was going to win because of the data. You know, we were constantly bombarded with uh, our own data and others saying she has a 98% chance of winning. So I thought, okay, data side, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of momentum or excitement. It feels like sort of a slog, but maybe that's just how Hillary Clinton wins the presidency. You know, I was joking around the newsroom, I was calling it Hillary's death march to victory. It didn't feel the way Obama's campaign felt in terms of this is winning, This is there's momentum here. If we recap mm-hmm. a bit and look back on, on her background, on, mm-hmm. on her home uh, and her, her, her affection for her mother, these were things that came out really for the first time in this campaign that they hadn't, she hadn't used those issues uh, before, but perhaps too late. Yeah, I mean, with her mother, her mother Dorothy Rodham had a really uh, was really the driving force behind Hillary's whole mission to help women and and children. She was abandoned and abused as a child. Um, she was uh, forced to work for a family that was terrible to her. Um, and so uh, Hillary really used her mother's story to inspire her. But she never, you're right, she never talked about it. And I would say for two reasons: one, in 2008, her campaign had done all the focus groups that showed that voters, even Democrats, were skeptical of voting for a woman unless they could be assured. That she'd be a strong commander-in-chief. So they really buried the gender component and talked about her as this strong commander-in-chief. And also, Hillary was not comfortable telling her mother's story while her mother was still alive. She passed away in 2011. Um, and I think in this campaign, she slowly became more comfortable talking about Dorothy. Um, as one of her good friends told me, you know, you look at Bill Clinton's life, his, his upbringing, dirt poor Arkansas kid, you know, father died before he was born. Um, there's a lot of poetry in his story and how he, uh, even Obama, there's a lot of poetry in his in his story. Hillary was a, you know, upper middle class kid from Chicago. The only poetry she had was really her mother's impoverished uh, childhood. And, and she was uncomfortable talking about that when she was alive, but as you said, became more comfortable with it this campaign and I think gave voters something sort of emotional to attach to her. Um, this was after polling consistently showed that she was regarded as, as cold and uh, as, as unapproachable, as, as distant. Right, right. I mean, there was one point in the campaign when she got, you know, can you imagine having a conference call with pollsters every day telling you that the country doesn't like you? You know, she eventually got very uh, frustrated, I think, as anyone would, with being told how much people don't like her. And I think, especially after the convention, if you remember, she, she gave a Good convention speech. Uh, you know, it really looked like she was, I think she was 10 points ahead of Trump at that point. And she just said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to make people like me. It's, it's, it's pointless. We're going to scare them about, you know, the other, the other guy is so unacceptable that we're going to, you know, put that front and center and worry less about how people, you know, whether people like her or not. Now, I, I, I know you've described her as being driven by what you called a Methodist uh, credo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I get the sense from that that, that she, you don't see her as a cynical politician, that she actually believes in something, that she's not like an awful lot of, of mm-hmm. politicians these days, just slickly packaged products, although maybe she became that. But what, what, what is it that drives her? 
Well, um, yes, I'm glad you make you make that point because I think voters didn't realize how dev- devout she is. Her faith is the driving force behind everything in her life. I've seen her, I've seen Hillary reading the Bible on the campaign trail. I've gone, I went to church with her every Sunday for probably a year and a half, and she can quote scripture fluently. Um, and I and I do think you know there are controversies around the Clintons. There are uh, you know questions about what Hillary really believes. But I do think she has a core, and that core is motivated very much by the Methodist credo of of you do all the good you can for all the people you can and all the time you can. And I and I think at the end of the day that was what motivated her. It was interesting. She really didn't want to put her faith wear her faith on her sleeve during the campaign. She was worried it would come off as cynical. As you said, people didn't like her or trust her. They might have seen that as another political sort of ploy and it was, it's so personal to her that she didn't highlight it. It would come up spontaneously. I remember at a town hall in Iowa, a voter asked her about her religion and she went into this long response that seemed very authentic and and you know surprised people. And it's the same way when she would she would visit a lot of black churches. She had just such a fluency with with scripture and and uh, and faith. Uh, but and her politics were also uh, and this is this was forgotten actually miss Covered here, I think, mm. uh, in in terms of reporting uh, of of uh, her campaigning, was to the left of uh, Obama, uh, to the center left of the Democratic Party. Uh, yes, I think Bernie Sanders pushed her that way. Um, you know, of course, you know Bill Clinton created a new type of Democrat, the new Democrats who were centrist. Hillary uh, uh, was always to the left of her husband. I mean, it, it seemed uh, cynical when she said it at the time, but she opposed NAFTA. She was very uh, skeptical about welfare reform during the Clinton year, during her husband's administration. Of course, as first lady, she had to support those things because they were her husband's agendas. But the, it, within the White House, uh, the first lady's office was known as the Bolsheviks. That's what Bill Clinton's <laughs> advisors thought of her. So I found it fascinating when she finally reemerges to run against, you know, socialist Bernie Sanders and had to prove her lefty credibility. I mean, it just shows you how long Hillary has been around. She spent years trying to prove she wasn't a scary lefty, you know, liberal feminist. And then all of a sudden she's trying to, oh, yeah, I am. I've been a progressive my whole life, you know, because she was very much associated with her husband's centrist agenda. And I think also when she was a senator, a New York senator, she was uh, very hawkish on foreign policy mm-hmm. and, and, you know, emerged as this uh, centrist Democrat. I, I remember her, her campaign mm-hmm. for the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I reported on it. And a public meeting, I remember particularly in upstate New York, uh, and I saw her speak and the crowd were very keen, but not terribly warm until Bill arrived. And he came in late as usual and uh, electrified the crowd in mm-hmm. a way that she never could. Mm-hmm. And it was really quite striking at that, that moment that uh, that uh, about how different she was actually from mm-hmm. Bill, but uh, they had a an interesting uh, relation, have an interesting relationship, very much of equals. And I think he he at one time said, "I my, married my best friend," but I think he, what he meant there was partly that he married a political comrade. Isn't that isn't that uh, it, it was meant kindly? Uh, it didn't necessarily come across uh, that uh, that way. Uh, her relationship with Bill is is very striking. Uh, the shadow of Lewinsky was mm-hmm. always was, mm-hmm. has always carried through in a way that it wouldn't for for a man, uh, and uh, coloured her her entire campaign. Hmm. I would disagree that it coloured her campaign until Donald Trump chose to 
you know, bring up a lot of back history with Donald, you know, with with Bill Clinton, including uh, rolling out some of the women who accused uh, Bill Clinton of sexual assault uh, charges that were not ever proven, uh, you know, putting those women in the front row of a debate. And he really sort of, I think because he was, Donald Trump was facing his own accusations of of sexual assault, he really leaned into Bill Clinton's history in a way that that actually in polls, voters did not blame Hillary Clinton for her husband's misdeeds. But I would just say in, you know, in choosing to stay with Bill after Monica Lewinsky, I think it added another layer to the complexity with which we view, with which women view Hillary. Um, You're such a feminist, but you stayed with your husband. Um, you know, I, I think she's just a, a lightning rod. Conservative women, particularly, I think, was it? Yeah, yeah. But I think there's a lot of like liberal lefty women who would have said, "Why didn't she uh, leave?" I mean, ultimately, I feel like Hillary gets a a bad rap for being, you know, she's being compared. You mentioned that event in upstate. I mean, Bill Clinton is a political virtuoso. <laughs> you know, it's like comparing her to Bill Clinton. Who Who is that good? Obama's not that good at retail politics. Um, I would say Hillary has her own strengths as a politician. I, I was always thinking about it. If Obama's strength was speaking to a crowd of 50,000 people with his roaring, you know, soaring oratory, and Bill Clinton was speaking to that room full of farmers upstate, you know, making them all feel special, I think Hillary's gift... You saw in the debates. I think she's an incredibly prepared debater. You saw in the Benghazi committee. She has an amazing ability not to lose her cool. And so I always felt like she had a bit of a hard time being compared to Bill Clinton in terms of her political skills. because No one else has those. Donald Trump doesn't like to shake hands. He's a germaphobe. (laughs) Well, she came (laughs) to the presidency campaign with huge experience. And uh, first lady, New York senator, presidential candidate, secretary of state. Uh, and in the Senate and and as Secretary of State, she had really quite an impressive record. Um, no, I think she did. I think she, uh, you know, she was she had a seventy percent approval rating at the State Department. Think about that. Uh, she was voted Gallup's most uh, admired woman alive for I think five years running. Um, I, I think uh, she emerged from the State Department incredibly popular and beloved. And then as soon as she re-entered, which happens with her a lot, as soon as she re-enters the political fray, uh, you know, the Republicans throw everything they have at her. She becomes, I think, more guarded. Um, she would always say on the campaign trail, whenever I'm doing the job, people like me. It's just when I'm running for the job, they don't. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's it's. I, I look at her back at her at State Department, you know, she would wear her glasses. She would have her hair back in a, in a scrunchie, sleeves rolled up doing her job. And people did respond to that Hillary Clinton. I think she then became a very packaged cause political candidate and opinions about her changed. The Her experience, in fact, told against her in the sense that she became a member of the establishment in a fundamentally anti-establishment election campaign against against Donald Trump. Now, what's happened to her now? Is she out of politics now? Or is she? I don't think Hillary Clinton will ever run for anything again. Yeah, she's out of politics. So she'd go around making speeches, probably, and, and she'll give speeches. Uh, you know, it's it's not it's not clear yet whether she would join her family's found rejoin the family's foundation or how she will channel her, you know, her activism. She's signaled that she wants to be out there a little bit more. As you you mentioned earlier, she she said in a speech in Scranton on Patty's Day that she wants to come out of the woods. Hi, I'm Cathy Sheridan, the host of the award-winning women's podcast. It's a twice-weekly look at the world from a female perspective, full of feminism, humour, politics, sex, storytelling, relationships and more. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. You can find us on irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. 
turning uh, to the new Trump era and specifically the challenges for journalists, mm -hmm. um, if there is bewilderment here about Clinton's unpopularity, and I think I think that's still very strong, uh, there is just as much bewilderment here about how America could elect Trump mm -hmm. uh, and and who who are these people who elect him? He will get uh, a very rough reception if he does come here to visit because he certainly uh, is not popular. But U.S. voters are not all mad, deluded, or bad. How do you explain the phenomenon? Well, I think, and that's a good point. I think we, the media, uh, the 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 Trump voters we covered during the election, to a large extent, were the most extreme. You know, we had a video online. I think at the time, New York Times most read, most watched video of of extremely racist, sexist, offensive things that people were yelling at his rallies. But you're absolutely right; these are not his only voters. You know, there were plenty of, for instance, Hillary really thought she would win suburban women, suburban women whose husbands might be Republicans but who are more independent. She thought they would be so turned off by uh, Donald Trump's comments about women that they would vote for Hillary even if they didn't really like her. That turned out to be not the case. She lost white women. Um, she lost white suburban women in particular. Um, and so there were a lot of, I think there were, there are Republicans who just can't stand Hillary, and maybe they didn't like Trump and thought some of the things he said were disgusting, but said he's better than she is. Um, and then I think, you know, you mentioned another class of people, which are a, a, a wide swath of of the country that used to have a thriving uh, manufacturing industry has been gone for a long time. This, these aren't new trends, but they certainly came to a heat, and Donald Trump knew how to kind of channel the frustration of the white working class voters who have seen over the past, you know, 20 years jobs decline, wages fall, even as the richest 1% gets even richer, and, you know, the, 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 uh, the economy vastly benefits educated people on the coasts. Those people have felt left out, and the right candidate could channel that, and he did. Now, Turning specifically mm -hmm. to to his relationship uh, with with journalism and journalists, um, New York Times has been running stories headlined "Trump Lies Again," and it's it's the, the sort of headlines which they would never have written about any other politician because it implies a newspaper coming to a value judgment mm -hmm. about the content of what politicians are, are saying. What do you see as a political reporter as the challenge of alternative facts? Well, it's interesting. I, during the campaign, we decided to call Trump, say that he lied in a front page story about the birther accusations when he um, when he claimed when he finally said that he uh, believes President Obama after years of spreading misinformation that he wasn't born and that he was born in Kenya and we need to see the birth certificate. I mean, Trump really started that birther movement then saying he never started it. Hillary Clinton actually started it. And I think the Times made the decision to call it a lie. And I think you're right. It's very complicated to call something a lie because that implies motivation. Now, is Hillary Clinton always truthful? No. She's definitely economical with the truth, as is every politician. But I think there's a certain legalese that politicians lie in, probably in Ireland and, and elsewhere. And, and Trump has a different relationship with the truth. And I think our, my editors made the decision that it was important to call those things lies. When the, when they were, um, in terms of how it's impacting my newsroom, you know, our subscriptions are up. We're finding people are willing to pay for the news in a way that they uh, that they didn't before. It's really kind of I think invigorated uh, the print media in a way that uh, you know they kind of appreciate our role in a democracy. It's something that we've said for some time in the newspaper business. Mm -hmm that the value added that we provide in the age of the internet mm -hmm. is that these are sources that you can actually rely on. But you still have to persuade people 
that you're telling the truth and he's not. And that's that's problematic. I think it's problematic and there's a certain uh, contingent of, you know, America's an enormous country and there's a contingent of people that will never believe that the New York Times is fact. They get their news from Breitbart or they get their news from Fox News or uh, any of these conservative-leaning uh, publications and they will never when, – when Donald Trump says the New York Times is fake news, they will, they will believe him. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm fascinated by what is not just an occasional lie, mm -hmm. uh, but a method, mm -hmm. uh, an entirely new method of approaching politics, you know, whether it's his claims that he won the popular vote or that Obama bugged him or that the murder rate is at an all-time high when it's actually at a historic low. Uh, Krugman, Paul Krugman, the economist, talks about an administration that operates under a, a doctrine of presidential infallibility. And, and I'm struck by, uh, it seems to me, this historical parallel. Um, the Indiana legislature, this may be an obscure point, okay. in the, the 1890s voted to redefine the value of pi as mm -hmm. four. Uh, it was passed in the House but defeated in the Senate. And Trump, as one commentator said at the time of the pi bill, would happily write that water runs uphill. Uh, but simply denying untruth will, will not wash. Uh, and the audience has to be persuaded. How how do you get through to that audience? That's a good question. I think, uh, well, you mentioned the murder statistics. I think that we, I think the Internet has turned us all into, you know, a nation of enraged fact checkers. But fact checking, the fact checking, I think fact checking while he's talking is something that, you know, I don't think we've ever done with any other president live fact checking. And I think we have to, the way he has harnessed social media to get, uh, to spread confusion, in some cases to spread untruths, um, I think the media also has to harness it to push back to uh, to fact check to spread the word. I mean, again, it's it's a hard thing to counter with his particular base of supporters who already distrust the media. But it's something that makes me, as, as a mm -hmm. journalist, very mm -hmm. uncomfortable mm -hmm. putting a label beside something and saying this is a fact check. Right. Or just as it makes me very unnervous when we put a label that says eyewitness report. Right. Because actually, what we're saying is that the rest of the stuff that you see in the newspaper are not, if you like, covering things in the same way, the mm -hmm. same same sort of standards. It it is quite difficult for journalists to 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 do that. Uh, we're we're saying something about our normal standards a bit, aren't we? I think so, but I wonder if it's different in any administration. I mean, in any administration, the things that you see in the newspaper, uh, your newspaper or mine, are often the things that someone in the administration has whispered to us, has told us, has steered us onto, um, and we go with that. Mm. That's that's absolutely true. Looking at the at, at the administration, do you think there's a discernible difference between Trump himself and the rest of his administration, or are they all cut from the same cloth? And the other thing that related to this is the idea that responsibilities of office somehow would tame him and would begin to shape a more moderate and more reasonable Trump. Do do you see either of those? Um, well, the people who said, oh, he'll be presidential once the weight of the office, I mean, I never believed that. I, I must have heard Hillary Clinton a thousand times quote Maya Angelou saying, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. You know, he showed us who he was in the campaign, and anyone who is surprised, I think my only surprise in the administration is how surprised people have been by his antics. I mean, he kind of showed us exactly who he was, so the idea that this new Trump will emerge. You know, he gave that speech to Congress, and he read off the teleprompter, and the next day there was a lot of pontificating on cable news about how this is the more president. We finally saw the presidential Trump. You know, and the very next day he accused Obama of wiretapping uh, Trump 
Trump Tower. And so I, I think we have to be very careful of saying there's this new, different Trump emerging. I think we, we know what we're getting. Um, in terms of factions in the White House, it's very hard to know whether there are actually these dueling factions. I mean, certainly Trump sort of likes chaos around him. He likes people vying for his attention and loyalty and affections. Uh, but it's also clear that Ivanka and Jared sort of it benefits them to be known as kind of the sane, more liberal voice pushing for women and families and policies that help people. Um, you know, it, it benefits them to be seen as that faction. And so I think we have to it, it's hard to parse how much of it is kind of pushing out this narrative that, you know, I mean, Ivanka wants a very long future after this administration. She doesn't want to turn off her customers. She doesn't. She has all kinds of motivations for being seen as kind of the sane force pushing him to help women and, you know, with equal pay and other policies. Now, just turning yeah. finally to to what has been emerging in the last couple mm -hmm. of days, the statement by FBI Director mm -hmm. James Comey uh, to to Congress mm -hmm. that. Uh, yes, the FBI is investigating Trump's campaign connections with uh, Russia. This is this is not actually the con campaign connections are not new. Uh, we've been hearing from the New York Times, among others, uh, since the middle of the campaign, that the, uh, the that there were contacts with the Russians. Clearly, clearly, uh, there's new reports about Manafort and his connections with the Ukrainians and large amounts of money. Um, where is that story going to go? How how far do you think they will be able to show that there not only was the connections, but some kind of political collusion? Well, that's the ultimate, you know, what did he know and when did he know it kind of question. I think that this is a this is certainly going to be a long term investigation that's going to class cast a cloud over everything else the Trump administration does. I mean, the FBI is actively investigating Trump confidants who had uh, coordination with the uh, with the Russians. I think um, I think the question is, is, was there collusion? I think Comey yesterday or the day before talked about, um, you know, was there communication? And I think once he can prove that, if he proves that, was there collusion? And what was the what was the purpose of it? And I think it's going to continue to distract Donald Trump. We don't know is the answer. We don't know where it's going to end, we but it's certainly going to be hanging over the administration for a, a good a good time. And the other thing is is the sense of betrayal that m most commentators, mm -hmm. maybe there's wishful thinking there involved too, that they're convinced that Trump's constituency are going to turn on him and they're going to turn on him quite quickly when they discover that uh, the ab abolition of Obamacare uh, is something that is going to, benefit, is going to hurt Trump supporters uh, uh, worst and... Uh, can you see where uh, or and how long it's going to take for that sense of betrayal to emerge as a political force? Um, I think it's wishful thinking to think it would happen anytime soon. I mean, his approval rate, Trump, Trump's approval ratings are worse than any other modern president. They're in 40 percentile. Uh, but among his base of supporters, you know, they still believe in him. I think a lot of the uh, negativity around some of what he, what the administration is going through, they think it's fake news created by the elitist media. I mean, they've really kind of bought into this narrative and, and believe it. And I think it's going to take a very long time for them to turn on Donald Trump. I mean, what I've heard from voters is, well, the media is not giving him a chance or, you know, no one's giving him a chance. And I also think you have to... Um, 
appreciate the level of misinformation among voters in the country who are disconnected to Washington and New York. And, you know, I used to be out in the country and I would have people tell me, well, I just want the government out of my Medicare. Of course, the Medicare being a government funded funded program. I mean, there's a lot of misinformation. Um, Will they say I lost my health care or I lost my free meals that used to get delivered to my house because of the Trump budget, because of the Trump plan? Or will they believe that uh, the House Republicans, the establishment, it's Paul Ryan's fault, it's the media's fault? I mean, I think it's an open question whether they how long it takes before they directly connect it to their guy. And frankly, I'm a little concerned if that does happen, like where does the anger go from there? If they channel all of their anger into Donald Donald Trump, um, and he lets them down. Uh, do people take to the streets? I mean, I think it's a it's a question of where that anger goes after that. Thank you very much, Amy. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Amy Chozik, who is appearing on Wednesday evening in Mountains to Sea Festival in Dunleary, 8 o'clock. If you need more information on that, mountainstosea.ie. And to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon, I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 